Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like Good morning again. It is the 7th of June, 2022. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen. If you missed the first hour, you can catch it as a podcast at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. And because Ryan Mitchell is so diligent, all of the um, links that we talk about, all of the um, stories that we talk about that I lift up from sources around the country and around the world are all available to you now in the notes for the show posted there at MyFaithRadio.com and on the Faith Radio app. So everywhere, actually, everywhere you listen to your podcast, it's already in the notes right there. Like if you look in the description of the podcast, you're going to see all of um, the links for what we're talking about today. And you're really going to want the links for this um, opening segment because I'm going to talk about some really good news stories, super fun things that... um, uh, I became aware of just in the last 24 hours, and I thought, I'm telling all of these good news stories in the open. So here we go. The first one is most appropriate for a fi- Friday Farm Report, but it's not Friday. It's Tuesday, so I don't really know what to call it. But um, yeehaw for the Cowboys. Real Cowboys on real horseback saved the day on Interstate 40 yesterday in Oklahoma. A rogue cow uh, made its way onto the interstate. You can imagine how disruptive that was. And so there's a guy in a pickup truck involved. There's a guy in like a little Ranger four by four thing. Um, And then and then you see the cowboys on horseback come into into view and one lassos, um, you know, the the head of um, of the cow. And then the other cowboy does an expert job lassoing the hind legs and. I mean, the cow is not injured. Um, no one, no one is hurt. It's you know, yay, yippee! Cowboys saved the day. I totally love it. I love these <laughs> these kinds of stories because I think we often imagine that you know, bigger is better and technology is great. But sometimes real cowboys on real horseback who know how to lasso, like yeah, they come in to save the day. Then I have a rat to the rescue story, and you say to yourself, "What? There's nothing good about a rat." Well, come to find out. Rats being highly social and um, interested and inquisitive and willing to go anywhere and being um, apparently very light of foot. They make excellent, excellent search and rescue um, related uh, animals in disaster zones, particularly earthquake zones. So um, they have now outfitted rats. I know you're thinking to yourself, that's so gross. I'm sure these rats are very clean and diligent um, because they're living in captivity. So these rats are being trained to be sent into earthquake debris or a, a fallen building. Um, and they wear these tiny little backpacks so that the rescue teams can talk directly to the survivors. Like they can talk to people in these crevices and under these collapsed buildings. Um, and the rats, you know, obviously are interested. Uh, they are um, apparently have done very well in their training. Um 
and, you know, they're light of foot and survivors. And so there you go. Now I have some how to avoid mosquito bites this summer. Um, I I did not know this. Um, I'm not sure that this is well known. Here are some things I have learned. Um, By the way, I have citronella plants now on my front and back porch as a deterrent. But here you go. Apparently, they used to use these three major cues um, in terms of attracting mosquitoes. So obviously you would avoid these if you wanted to avoid mosquitoes. But you can't avoid breathing. So the first one is important. Apparently, when we emit CO2, like, you know, exhaling, that is the major attractant for the mosquito. They also are attracted to our sweat and the temperature of our skin. So um, your breath, your sweat, and the temperature of your skin have apparently been understood to be the major cues that attract mosquitoes. But now studies show that there's a fourth cue, and that is the color red and or orange. So it actually matters what color your clothes are. There you go. Um, apparently, uh, the, the, the redder you are, um, the more attractive you are to mosquitoes. It's not just the fact that you're sweet, which I have always thought was my issue. Mm-hmm. There you go. I know. All right. And then, yes, really, really good news as well. Um, there are some wonderful conversion stories posted um, on the Internet. And if you haven't read a really positive conversion story lately, go to like faithwire.com. Read the story um, about the real live witch, the real live teenage witch, um, who, you know, says, I should have been dead. Um, but now I worship Jesus. And that um, transfer from the kingdom of darkness into light in real life of a real person, you know, those are inspiring faith stories. And so let me encourage you to um, read some of those today as well. All right, we got Dr. Brett Nix in the house from the Christian Medical and Dental Association, and he's coming us to us today from Spain. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Apparently, travel is back. In the last hour, we talked to Luke Moon from Israel, and now we got Dr. Brett Nix from Spain. Hey, good morning. Oh, or good afternoon. Brett? Brett, paging Brett. Did we lose him? Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Hey, I'm great. I'm great. All right. So um, what, what are you doing in Spain? I am actually teaching at the University of Navarra in Pamplona. I uh, come over here on an annual basis, although with COVID, it's been a couple of years, and I teach what in its time was the first introduction to emergency medicine course in the country. Uh, And so now it's an elective for the students, and it's just a great opportunity to come over and explore God's amazing uh, world that he's been created and and, uh, just the different cultures that are here. I love that. That's so great. Um, All right, let's start with a headline related to managing long COVID. What do we need to know? You know, we talked about this before. Long COVID is such a challenge. And if most of us recall, goodness, maybe 20, 30 years ago, we heard this thing called chronic fatigue syndrome. And it came about in the 90s, and people really weren't sure what this was. And what we ended up finding out is that downstream of a viral illness, and in that circumstance, we ended up seeing it related to HIV, people just, even if they were treated, just didn't feel great. Um, Well, you know, this is a different virus. This is not HIV. This is not AIDS. We're talking about something completely different. But what we're finding is 
after people have COVID, downstream of it, you have a mix of things that are left. And a lot of these complaints are fatigue and even these cognitive deficiencies. Your mind, we've heard it, this issue with COVID fog. Your mind is not clear. Your processing is not as clean as it had been before, not as acute. And so what we're seeing more than anything else are really the ability as we look at this to say, hey, you know what? There are probably several different things going on. Yes, we hear about lung issues. Yes, we hear about brain issues. And yeah, we've heard about some heart issues related to it. The long COVID piece as it stands at this point is still a process in evolution. But what we do know to be true is simply this. Everybody is created differently and our responses will be different. If you are someone who is suffering from symptoms that you believe to be associated with long COVID, your doctors will do blood tests that look at your liver. They'll look at your thyroid. They sh- if you're having lung-related issues or shortness of breath, they should be doing pulmonary function tests and maybe an x-ray. And if you were just always short of breath and fatigued with your activity, probably an echocardiogram to look at your heart. All of these things will identify if there's something because of this process that has to be further addressed. Uh, but downstream of it, not all long COVID is the same, and everybody's body's response is going to be different. Hmm. All right. Talk with us um, a little bit about the relationship between not only the speed at which we walk now, but a decline in the speed we walk as a predictor of dementia. Yeah, boy, I want you to think for a second. If you know somebody who has dementia, uh, maybe you know somebody who has Parkinson's disease, but think about either one of those. Many times you'll notice that people get into what we call this shuffling or this rescue gait, a little bit wider stance, uh, a little bit more of a shuffling step. Well, we end up finding is many times we think of dementia as a cognitive decline where your mental capacity is not the same. You're forgetful. You don't then over time as it worsens have issues even recognizing family members or otherwise. Well, we've come to realize, though, is that the process by which you walk is probably just as predictive as your cognitive change. So if all of a sudden you at your baseline gait, the term that we use for walking, if the speed changes or your stability starts to change early on, if you start noticing that maybe you're prone to falling a little bit more frequently, that may be an earlier indicator than just memory lapses uh, that sometimes can fly under the radar that you are heading down toward a, a, a early onset or a process onset of dementia. And you know, there's some studies that have looked at this and really found that dementia risk is highest in people who have these slower gait speeds when it's coupled with this lower memory score over time. What does that mean for all of us? Well, the one thing that we know to be true is as we age, our balance is not the same. So we need to work on strength, we need to work on our our balance and something that we call proprioception. That's our body's ability to figure out where we are in space. There's exercises, there's yoga, there's strengthening, all these things are critically important and likely will save off some processes related to this gait disturbance related to dementia. But the one thing that your doctor should be doing, because typically they'll do memory scores. As we get older, you see your doctor, they'll do a memory test or they'll send you one to perform. We should also be doing gait testing. And the combination of those may actually be predictive. We don't have anything right now that's preventive. But again, understanding what might be coming is very helpful. All right. um, Let's take a very, very brief break. When we come back, um, I've got a question for you related to melatonin and the use of melatonin. in kids, people giving melatonin to their kids. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen, Dr. Brett Nix, coming to us live from Spain. That's up next. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Nice job with the Spanish music there, Paul Perot. Good job. Good job. So we're talking with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He is also an emergency room doctor. He is teaching um, at a uh, at a medical facility in Spain right now, and he comes to us live from there. Um, Brett, I'll, I'll confess to you, I had in my mind um, the giving of melatonin to children at a uh uh, at a daycare near me um, that was in the news recently instead of the article that you and I are actually going to talk about, which is um, how many kids accidentally overdose, basically poison themselves, um, you know, eating melatonin gummies and or other flavored melatonin that they find in their house. So talk with us about this because it's it's pretty significant uh, in terms of what's going on in the country. It is. And, you know, recognize a couple things. First of all, melatonin is a dietary supplement. So it is not FDA approved as far as dosing or anything along those lines. And as you know, you can go into your local grocery store, Trader Joe's, pharmacy, etc., and you can buy it off the shelf. And many times it's also well-flavored, either as a mint or in fruit flavors, or as you stated, even gummies. The challenge with this, though, is, is one thing. Number one, let's take a step back. What is melatonin? Melatonin is something that your brain secretes at night based on darkness. Well, our bodies are created for what? We have a daytime and a nighttime cycle. It's our body's restorative process. So when we are around darkness, our bodies uh, in our brain, something called the pineal gland, begins to secrete melatonin, and that triggers our body to start to enter into our sleep cycle. Well, however, we change this where now we have electricity 24-7. We have TVs on until we're at bed. We have smartphones and devices in front of us. Our body's continuing having these light cycles that prevents our body's natural transition. So here go, we say, well, if I'm having a hard time sleeping, since I'm not allowing my body to see the darkness, let me take a supplement that is what my body normally would produce. And we've seen this in the literature as of late. Since 2012, there has been a 530% huge number increase in the amount of pediatric ingestions for this. Parents bringing it home for their children, saying my kids are having a hard time sleeping. Uh, and in addition to that, there's not a lot of regulation related to the dosing. So you give your child a little bit, it didn't work. You may give them a little bit more. You may give them a little bit more. And we have to recognize this is something that our brain produces. This is a psychoactive medication that can cause all kinds of things when you look at uh, overdoses, whether accidental or otherwise. And in most of these circumstances, most kids, if they have too much, they don't have symptoms, but they can have vomiting. They can have diarrhea. Uh, sometimes they can have palpitations and some heart-associated features, but sometimes it's just central nervous system confusion uh, in, in most of these situations. But the challenge, and I guess perhaps the question that we should be asking ourselves is this simple one up front. Uh, why the melatonin? You know, we should be asking ourselves, does our child need it? What's going on that's preventing them to get enough rest? What social burdens are leading to these diet, these issues? And the vast majority of the use and the, and the climb that we are seeing all occurred over the last couple of years with COVID. Kids were at home. They were not in the same scenarios as far as the level of activity, the level of social interaction and engagement, and quite likely a whole lot more uh, screen time, whether that be TV, phone, or otherwise. And so, you know, the question as we step back is, is that, hey, what are we doing to go ahead and assure that our kids are getting enough exercise, eating well to prepare them for sleep? If they have had issues with anxiety and fear because of COVID, how am I addressing that? And is that coming across in this issue with insomnia or otherwise? Uh, because melatonin, while it is something our body produces, and quite honestly, all of us produce the right amount that we should need, quite honestly, most of the time, if we follow a normal process, should we really be giving this? And these overdose issues as it relates are very concerning, 
which is we're looking for a pill for an answer rather than actually having the conversation with our, our families, with our kids as to what's really going on. Um, this darkness thing is super interesting to me um, because a lot of kids sleep with a light on. It's very true. And it's one of those things that for some it's around an issue of fear. Uh, some it's just because, you know, you watch the shows and there's something under your bed, whether that be Disney or otherwise, that have them out there. A small light in the room is not going to be one that is so preventative as it relates to the amount of melatonin. But light presence does see, does decrease the amount that's present. So, you know, one of the things we tell people is just like when you're you're training your child to be potty trained and you go through a process – the same thing can be done as far as sleep training, which is you go into the room, you dim the lights, you read them a story, you, you say your prayers, you have conversation, and it's a preparatory stage. Uh, one of the other things that is very common is obviously a warm shower, warm bath. All those things are helping the body transition from a, a daytime activity level to a nighttime activity level. Uh, if you build that into practice, the body's natural transition will follow that. Uh, and you know, having a small nightlight in the room just for safety and for the child being able to get up and move around, totally fine. But, you know, bright lights overhead, a TV that's left on, all of those things will continue to cause stimulation and minimize the amount of melatonin that the body can produce. Mm, so helpful. Um, all right. You've got something for us on the possible treatment of hearing loss. Um, and so, mom, turn up your hearing aids. You know, this is fascinating. So there is a uh, recent article that came out that talked about a 3D printing of an ear. Um, mm. And... You know, in certain circumstances, people may be born in their exter external auditory space. So the area of your ear that you, you visualize, what we call the oracle, can be malformed or too small. Well, we use this as a, as a means of attracting sound into our ear, uh, and it kind of works like a, a funnel, if you will. And what they have been able to do is to take an individual's own cells. So just take, taking some saliva from your mouth and placing this and allow those cells to develop and taking those cells and moving them through a 3D printer to actually navigate uh, transplanting this to an individual. And why is this important? Number one, cosmetically, having a balanced ear uh, visually looks great. That's just what your, your body's natural tendency would be is to see symmetry on one side or the other. But as you stated, this is a hearing benefit to this individual where now all of a sudden uh, the way your ear is created, you're able to bring the sound in through the external portion of the ear to the eardrum and actually now able to, to hear where you before may have had to have uh, a hearing aid. Now you actually have your natural cells developed to match the opposite side. And the beautiful thing as it relates to this is that this is your own tissue. So the issues as far as rejection uh, are incredibly, incredibly low because your body says, hey, this is me. This isn't something that's artificial that's being implanted or changed. So instead of a plastic surgery approach to modify it, here you have a process where you navigate your own cell tissue to go ahead and create uh, the matching side, if you will, of the other ear. This is not a common process, but really a fascinating thing uh, about using someone's own cells in a very positive way uh, to benefit them as well. Okay, this regenerative medicine conversation reminded me to, um, if you if you are open to it, um, get a summer book reading assignment so that you can bring us a book review. Would you be open to that? Can I make a summer I reading? Okay, so the book Absolutely. is Life. Life Force, How New Breakthroughs in Precision Medicine Can Transform the Quality of Your Life and Those You Love. Surprisingly, Tony Robbins is one of the three authors. The other guys are, you know, like medical doctors and the real deal. Um, but this precision medicine conversation, I think, is one a lot of people are interested in. Um, and then I think from a Christian worldview, like, 
how much is reasonable in terms of what we're willing to do to these physical bodies to ensure that, you know, they wear well, last as long as is reasonably possible. But then also, are there things that we might consider doing that sort of go beyond the pale in terms of what we as Christians should be considering? So if you're open to it and you'd read it and review it for us, that would be awesome. That would be great. Yeah, this is a valid question for every single one of us, because there are things that we do to our bodies uh, that require a change. I mean, you think about this, maybe you get an infection, maybe you have a problem, and all of a sudden, it's affected your heart valve. And we have a surgical process to go in and change that valve. But yeah, you're putting something that's artificial into your body. What does that look like as it relates to now getting to the step of the precision medicine aspect, which is to dial in and look specifically at the genes that you were given, which you were created with, to mask out exactly who you are, and to look at this and say, hey, does this predict certain things, and how do we go ahead and address those up front? Uh, yeah, this book will be fascinating, I'm sure, and hopefully they'll have some some good conversations related to the direction of things. And from a medical perspective, it's one thing. From a faith-based perspective, to look at this and say, okay, you know, how do we how do we align with this, and what does that mean for each one of us? That should be a great conversation. Yeah, I think the regenerative medicine conversation is a really good one, especially when our cells, you know, can be used to heal our own bodies. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. All right, Brett, back to all the fun you're having in Spain. Thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. We really appreciate it. That's Dr. Brett Nix. You can find him at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, cmda.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. We frequently talk about the difficulty of being Christian in China. Um, We also frequently talk about the challenges of people in Hong Kong in relationship to the changing relationship there um, of uh, mainland China to the people of Hong Kong. Of note today, um, Hong Kong's largest national security case was sent to trial today on Tuesday. Forty-seven defendants were denied bail. Um, these are people who are have, were pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, um, and you have to recognize that um, you know these are many of them Christians, but people who work in all kinds of industries. Um, it's hard to be a Christian in China. So, what does it look like for us to be exhorted by the Chinese church? The book is Faith in the Wilderness. Hannah Nation joins us next. Hannah Nation joins us now. She is one of the editors of Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. Hannah, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, sitting at the feet of other Christians and hearing about their experience and being informed by um, generations of what they have experienced and in this case endured, um, is, I think, unique for Western Christians to sit down and be quiet and listen. Talk about the inspiration behind Faith in the Wilderness and how the project came together. Sure. So um, I've worked with the Chinese church for 
quite a while now. And I mean, it, it's been hugely formative for my own faith. Um, just watching men and women that I, I know um, endure and um, endure with grace <laughs> and faith um, situations that I've never been through myself. Um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how much they really are in so many ways, our older brothers and sisters when it comes to understanding how to follow Christ in the midst of hardship. And I think, um, you know, we've been through now a couple of years in our own country of, I'd say, kind of a, a new level of, of suffering or hardship that um, we really haven't been as familiar with. You know, my, my grandparents um, went through World War II, so some of it is just generational. I think my generation, I, I'm, I'm young, I'm a millennial, and um, until COVID, I feel like we really hadn't experienced kind of a, a big, huge uh, kind of national level event like COVID. And watching my brothers and sisters in China um, endure not only COVID from China, but um, just the persecution that they face, I felt really inspired in my own faith to hear from them and learn from them. And yeah, basically this book um, at the beginning of 2020, when the pandemic broke out, um, uh, a large gathering of Christians in Southeast Asia was taking place. And there were um, many Chinese attendees and they were watching Wuhan get locked down and various cities across China go through lockdown. And um, so of course, a, a lot of Chinese uh, attendees of this conference um, couldn't leave China and travel to Malaysia where it was taking place. And so the Chinese participants decided to live stream the conference into China, which was an unprecedented decision. And their motto was to let the light shine into the darkness. And when the conference finished, um, they basically decided to keep preaching that um, a pandemic is probably the, one of the most important times to preach the gospel to people who have never heard it. Um, and so they continue to have these open access online preaching events where they would um, preach evangelistic messages to anyone who um, logged in. And we don't know precise numbers, but we know that tens of thousands of devices locked in across China um, to, to listen to the good news being preached. And as this was happening, my team and I uh, basically were, were hearing about this and hearing about how many people were uh, tuning in and, and listening. And so we asked if we could uh, get transcripts and, and start translating. And so we did that through 2020. And then it just felt like these are really valuable messages, not just for China, but for those outside of China for us. Um, to hear what the gospel really is in the midst of this kind of level of suffering. So with that's Han the, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Let me just remind our listeners, we're talking with Hannah Nation. She is one of the editors of Faith in the Wilderness, 
words of exhortation from the Chinese church. Um, I would describe it as um, sermonic. These are letters from, uh, you, you will read them as letters. You could also read them as sermons. They are sermonic in nature, as Hannah has just described. We do have copies to give away today if you are interested in sitting at the feet of our brothers and sisters in Christ in China. If you want revival in our community and you want to learn from those who are being revived, uh, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Hannah, if you would, take us into what, you know, the language is, you know, house church or the Chinese house church experience Um, as, you know, as Christian facilities, churches in particular, um, are demolished and people are restricted in terms of their ability to access community in in a quote unquote church as we would think of it. Um, the the house church movement in China is like underground and explosive. Talk talk with us about the house church experience. Like transport us there. What would we sure. experience if we got to um, participate in a house church in China? Sure. Well, first off, the house church in China is very large. Um, I think a lot of people still think of Christianity in China as probably small, um, but, you know, the conservative estimate is that there would be around 80 million Christians across China. Um, More uh, ambitious estimates exceed 100 million. So, you know, it's a very large church in China today. And most of those Christians are in what we call the house church. So in China, there is an official um, state church called the three self church. Um, But most Christians um, choose to be in a church in churches that are not officially registered with the communist party. And um, we call those the house churches. So historically, those churches uh, would have met in individual homes. Um, They probably would have been pretty small, and they were in rural locations um, out in the countryside of China. But really from especially the 1990s on, those demographics have started to really change. And um, today, the house churches are moving more into China's cities. So the Chinese population is generally moving into the cities. China cities are massive and large. And so the house churches today are usually more urban than rural. And um, yeah, they, they sometimes it can be a mixture. Sometimes they do still meet in individual homes. There are many, there's a lot of that still. Um, but especially through the 2000s, the early 2000s into the 2010s, um, there were a lot of churches that started to become more visible and more public. Um, there were a few very large churches with, um, you know, somewhere between 500 and 800 members. Some, I think some even larger than that, um, who, you know, either rented, you know, like large hotel ballrooms to worship in or, even owned like a whole floor of a business building. Um, So, you know, we still often use the word house church um, because that is generally what they call themselves. 
Um, but it, it can often be a misnomer to call them a house church because not all of them are literally meeting in people's private homes. Um, that being said, since 2018, um, new religious regulations were put into place across China, which affected not only Christians, but, but all religions across China. And um, the, the pressure on house churches has increased very significantly since 2018. And so even a lot of those churches that were meeting more publicly or more openly have started um, to return to, to more quiet, more private settings um, than, than, they, than they may have been in before 2018. But, but it's, a, it's a mixture, you know, I, I have a friend, he was educated, his seminary education took place in the US and um, in 2018, he returned to a large uh, coastal Chinese city, I, I won't say which one, um, but, uh, he and his church, they, they still are able to meet in a hotel and, um, pretty openly and, um, they're, they're not necessarily in hiding. I also have other contacts that I know, um, whose churches have endured very severe persecution in the last couple of years. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, have, have had raids by police and, arrests and beatings. And so it's a very varied landscape. Um, it really depends on what part of the country you're in and what the situation is locally. We're talking with Hannah Nation. The book is Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. What's we're talking with uh, Hannah Nation. Um, Hannah is a, a accomplished theologian. She serves as the managing director of the Center for House Church Theology, content director for China Partnership. She's a graduate of Covenant College and Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Um, she is uh, passionate about global Christianity and a student of it, and she comes to us today as one of the editors of Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. Um, Hannah, when when you think about global Christianity and you think about um, how little most American Christians know about what's really happening to our brothers and sisters around the world, when you think about generational persecution, when you think about um, people around the world who have an expectation of suffering as a regular aspect of the Christian life, I mean, they don't regard persecution or suffering as an, as an if, but, but a when. Mm. They, li they live mm. with a, an expectation of it. Like, I mean, do you ever grow frustrated with kind of the expectation that most American Christians have, which is that, you know, because I'm a Christian, life is going to be pretty good. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think actually I end up more convicted probably than, than frustrated just because I, I'm an American myself. So I, I have that same struggle of, you know, I think it's in the Kool-Aid it's, it's in our DNA as Americans to expect a good life. And when something comes that challenges it, um, it's really hard. It's really hard to our sense of identity. Um, I think it's really hard to our, our faith. 
um, I, my family and I had a very, uh, just personally difficult experience with COVID-19 and the pandemic. And I feel like that probably was the closest I've really had to tasting, um, any kind of hardship or suffering, um, that maybe is a, is a little more similar to what my brothers and sisters in China have endured. And, and it was so hard, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I am not, um, a superhero Christian and, and it was such a blessing to me to hear from, um, just these pastors in China who, as you just said, um, have a very different perspective on what the Christian life means um, than I have. And, and, and I want to say, you know, I, I don't think that um, we necessarily, um, I, I think there are people in the, in the U.S. who are familiar with suffering and there are good resources out there on suffering. But I think culturally, it's, it's very easy for us to forget how much Christ calls us um, to bear his cross. And that's not something for some Christians in some places. That's a call to all Christians everywhere. And that's something that um, those in the global church often really understand far better than us. And one of the things that I find so convicting from uh, the Chinese church is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a woman I've met um, her church has endured very significant hardship, and she also has been very involved in ministering to others across China um, whose churches have been persecuted. And she talks a lot about um, how the servant is not above the master or the teacher is, or the student is not above the teacher. And if Jesus uh, if his life in this world was full of, of hardship and, and suffering and sorrow, and if we are united to him, then we participate um, in that. Um, we, we bear that with him. And that goes against so much of the American ideal, I think. Um, but it's really helpful when I meditate on that. Um, I find it very convicting. I find it to really um, help me in my faith um, to recognize that my Savior and my Lord um, suffered greatly when he was on, on, you know, in this world. And um, I participate in that with him. But I, and I think it, it also really, one of the things that I've, I've long admired about um, the Chinese I know is how much that really gives them the ability um, to love and care for their enemies. Um, they have a great compassion for those who are persecuting them. It's not something that just comes naturally to them. They're very open about how when they are first attacked, their, their first feeling is anger. And, um, and but they're able to move past that and to really see the opportunity before them to preach the gospel to those who are persecuting them. And I also find that very convicting. Um, I think that there's, there's a need um, today in the American church to, to learn from that, to really understand that 
when we're able to lay aside our expectations for comfort and our expectations for ease, um, we're able to really step out in faith and share Christ lovingly and compassionately, but, but also boldly um, with those who might hurt us. And there's, there's so many times I've heard um, Chinese pastors say, oh, well, I, you know, they've come and arrested me. Now it's time to go preach the gospel <laughs> to those that are, are either going to be interrogating me or those that I'll be in prison with. And which um, is so I much just, closer. I mean, that's so much closer to the experience of Paul. Yes, than, exactly. You know, and, I mean, yes. it's so much closer to the uh, to the first generation experience of, of Christianity. It's yes. it's so yes. it's so wonderful. Um, we yes. we got to leave it right there. Um, what a delight. Uh, first of all, just to, to be able to talk with you, Hannah. But thank you so much um, for sitting at the feet, listening, translating, doing the hard work of translating and bringing us uh, the book today. Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. We are giving away a handful of copies. It's a beautiful book. Um, You'll be introduced to Brothers and Sisters in Christ. There's author bios that are just fantastic. The glossary of of Chinese characters um, is fun as well at the very end of the book. Um, These are, um, this gets you from sort of an American version of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God all the way to let us fall into the hand of the Lord. That is uh, one of the meditations on brokenness in the book. Let me invite you, if you're interested, to text the word book to 877-933-2484 and enter the drawing for the copies we're giving away today. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That's Hannah Nation. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. Um, what a joy to spend time with you today. Thank you so much. Let me um, let me share with you. So every the first Monday of every month, which yesterday was, um, we gather together as Northwestern Media teams from across the country. And yesterday, um, our colleague in Sioux Falls shared this great story about an eight-year-old standing up on the propane tank um, and you know talking for a long period of time to the cows. And come to find out that eight-year-old was preaching to the cows, uh, sharing Jesus with the cows, who, who come to find out are good listeners and never even blinked. Um, encouragement to the eight-year-old to share Jesus with people resulted in a conversation really about, well, just the desire to have holy cows. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I love that you're listening. I love that you're sharing the gospel generation to generation. Let us hear the positive stories um, of what God is doing in your own life, your own glory stories. You can always share those with me via email, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com or here on the text line. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.